0: Please take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. This week, as we continue to take a break from our studies in Ecclesiastes, we are looking at Matthew, chapter 2, what begins with the story of the visit of the Magi and continues uh, through the killing of the children in Bethlehem. It's a long passage that we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 through 23. We are going to look at the entire chapter Uh, That means that we're not going to get to do a deep dive in every little piece, Uh, so for those of you that expect that, it's okay, hold on, it's all right to just get a a bird's eye view of things sometimes. I think there is actually a a benefit to us seeing the whole story together and seeing the way that all these pieces fit together. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23 today. You can find that on page 807, if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Before we read this text together, let's pray uh, and seek God's blessing on our study. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, our Father, we thank you for this word which tells us about your Son. We thank you that you have sent him into the world to become our Savior and that you have sent your Holy Spirit into the hearts of your people to make us yours. We ask that you would unite our hearts, our souls, our minds, our ears, our wills, our attention, uh, that we might focus on him today, we might see and be blessed, that we might glorify you through the worship of receiving your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, In 1941, W.H. Auden published his poetic reimagining of the Christmas story. It was a long, book-length poem titled, For the Time Being. Uh, And at the end of that poem, Auden captures the feeling of returning to life after Christmas is over. So he writes this. Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree putting the decorations back in their cardboard boxes, some have got broken, and carrying them up to the attic. The holly and the mistletoe must be taken down and burnt, and the children got ready for school. There are enough leftovers to do, warmed up for the rest of the week, not that we have much appetite. Having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted quite unsuccessfully to love all of our relatives, and in general grossly overestimating our powers, but for the time being, here we all are. Back in the moderate Aristotelian city of Darning, in the 815, where Euclid's geometry and Newton's mechanics would account for our experience, and the kitchen table exists because I scrub it. It seems to have shrunk during the holidays. The streets are much narrower than we remembered. We had forgotten the office was as depressing as this. I wonder how long it takes life in your home to get back to normal after Christmas is over. Now, we have a saying, right? I'm as excited as a kid on Christmas morning. But what about that kid the next morning? What about that kid on the first Monday back to school? What about that kid getting ready for the first post-Christmas piano practice? You now, Before too long, she's counting the days and the months and waiting for Christmas to roll around again. As Christians, we have a similar Uh, routine, a rhythm to our lives, although it, it covers a shorter span of time. We gather together every Sunday for the highlight of our week. We gather together and we pray prayers and we sing songs and we see our souls written on the pages of scripture and then we go home. We go back to normal. We go back to our Monday mornings where so few of our neighbors share the excitement that we have in Christ Jesus. We go back to where the joy of the Sabbath day feels detached from our every day. Now, Matthew chapter 2 is the account of what happened when Christmas was over. A child has been born. The angels have gone. The shepherds have returned to their flocks. Not all the excitement is done, though. There's still this roving band of wise men who are coming to Jerusalem to bow down and worship the king. But even them, when they see him, once they open their chest of treasure, even they go home. It was a -a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage, and the rest of their lives were spent, wherever it was they had come from, in a post-Christmas state. Life changed for Jesus and for his family after Christmas was over. After Christmas is over, Joseph took his child and his wife, and they became refugees together. After Christmas was over, Herod went right on doing what Herod was known for, waxing paranoid and turning murderous rage against anyone who threatened his position. Actually, this is where most of our lives, all of our lives, are lived, in the shadow of Christmas past. In the shadow of what God has accomplished, what he's already done in bringing his son into the world, but there's still a lot to be learned after Christmas is over. Today, I want to help you see a few aspects of of Christ's identity from this passage. I want to help you see the way that they impact our post-Christmas life. But before we see something of Christ's identity, very briefly, we need to see something even more foundational than that. We need to see the fact that Christ was born into the same sad humanity that you inhabit. Verse 1 tells us, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's where we need to start. There is a time, and there is a place, and there is a thing that happened. Jesus was born. It's so commonplace that it happens Every day, it's so natural that every human being does it at least once in their lifetime. Jesus was born. He came into the world the same way that you did. He had a human mother, and there were arms to receive him, and there were claws to wrap him and guard him against the cold shock of the outside world. And that means that we are not dealing with a fairy tale. We're dealing with history. You might have a nativity set somewhere at home, on your mantle, maybe it's, it's made of white porcelain. And all of the figures look silently s- serene and reverent. And that's your vision of the Magi and of uh, Nativity and of Christmas and Advent. But don't let your visions of Christmas card scenes cloud out the reality of what's happening in this passage. Christ came with human flesh into our human pain. Christ came as a man of sorrows into our world of suffering. That's one of the reasons that I wanted us to look at the entirety of chapter 2 today. Typically, when we consider the Magi at Christmas time, we stop the reading at verse 12. We connect their coming and their gifts and their going home to the season of Advent. And if we ever finish the chapter at all, we save it for the third week in January. The one that's come to be known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Because there we don't see something uplifting, there we see something depressing and horrifying. And so we read of the slaughter of the boys in Bethlehem and we remember that the modern holocaust of abortion is not something that's new, even if it is more refined today than it used to be. Well, oh, but we need to see all of it together. Because if we separate this chapter, if we separate the incarnation from our sin and our suffering, we miss the point of why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus was not born into a Christmas candlelight service. The eternal God became flesh and was born into the disappointment of a feeding trough. He entered our world crying And hungry, he came in flailing his little arms and legs the way that babies do when they don't have any gross motor control yet. Jesus came into the world the same way that you did. The God of heaven took on the dust of the earth. The creator of time lived a life of 1,700 consecutive Monday mornings. Christ came and was born into the same sad humanity that you inhabit. When he came in, he came as king, he came as savior, and he came as a proof that God's word can be trusted. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time today, considering Christ our king, and Christ our shepherd, and Christ our proof of God's promises. Now, consider Christ our king. He... He came in as the king who demands our allegiance. Christ kingship is the theme that holds the whole chapter together. I hope you notice that. You notice in the first verses that Matthew says uh, there, there's, there's a conflict. Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. He points out that Herod is the king. And then when he was born, here come these magi from the east. And they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? There are competing claims there. No wonder Herod was troubled. Herod was not born king of the Jews. Herod wasn't even born a Jew. He was half Jewish, half idumean He was a client king installed by the Roman Senate to rule over their province of Judea in 37 B.C., a, a place and a position that he kept for 33 years until his death. Herod was universally despised by the people that he governed. They hated him. They wanted to get rid of him. It was known and and suspected that he hated them too. But what could they do? Because he was loyal to the Roman government and he represented the imperial power ruling over the Jewish people and over their land that God had promised to give them. But they could do nothing to get rid of him. Herod was not a devout man. But he did know enough about the Hebrew religion to know that for the last several centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting for a king who was a real king. A full-born Jew, an anointed son from King David's line, one who would fulfill God's promises and restore the splendor of the ancient kingdom. And Herod knows. When the Magi show up, Herod knows that if there is a king who is king by birth, his days in power are as good as over. Frederick Beekner puts it this way. He says, For all his enormous power, Herod knows there was someone in diapers more powerful still so there 's a king who 's been born and there is a king who is bothered. There is a king who's legitimate, and there's a king who's a pretender. There is a king by divine decree, and there is a king by Roman decision. But even wicked Herod knows enough to know that when Christ comes as king, it means the beginning of the end of his reign. And that's why the whole chapter focuses on Herod. Did you notice that? We focus on the Magi, but they come and they leave. And Herod continues going. And at every plot twist, it's Herod's paranoia that's driving the narrative. He's still there grasping at straws, trying unsuccessfully to eliminate the Messiah until his own death is announced in verse 19. And that's where the story ends for Herod. And it ends there to remind us that the story ends there for everyone who opposes God's righteous King. Matthew chapter 2 is the application of Psalm chapter 2 to every human heart. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? He who sits in heavens laughs. Now, if you're not paying attention, you could apply this only to political realities. You could assume that Jesus was was coming to be the king of a tiny slice of an ancient empire, that he was the promised leader for a particular time to overturn one uh, unrighteous, wicked ruler. When the Magi show up, they won't won't let you get away with that that easily. Because when the Gentiles show up in Jerusalem longing to pay homage to God's king, it's a sign that something universal is happening. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And we could multiply other texts, other promises from the Old Testament. We could look at Psalm 72 and Numbers 24. We could go to Isaiah 2, Isaiah 60. We could look all over the place in the Old Testament to see that God's promise that when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he's bringing his purposes for creation to completion. He's bringing his son into the world, the king who will rule over all peoples, over every individual the world over, and Herod knows it, which is why he asks the question that he does in verse 4, where is the Christ to be born? He asks about the Messiah. He knows what's up. Where is the Christ to be born? Where is God's anointed? Where can I find the king of kings who demands the allegiance of Caesars and citizens the world over? Where can we find him so that we can be free from his claims on our authority? It's the spirit of human rebellion. It's the unbelieving heart of man that says, you know, God can have his Sundays, but all of our Monday mornings belong to us. It's the rebellion that imagines that when the Lord of glory sits enthroned over creation, we can have some slice of our own little kingdom. Some county, some some township of, uh, of sin and unbelief where God can't see us and he can't hold us to account and he can't judge us or conquer us in Christ. Dear friends, these things are written for your instruction. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving, Herod-like heart, causing you to fall away from the living God, because you love your autonomy more than you love his anointed. Christ was born into our humanity, but he came as a king. He came as a king who demands our allegiance. He also came as the shepherd to gather God's scattered sheep. We find this confession on the lips of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Herod asks where the Messiah is to be born. In verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, at this point in Israel's history, the idea, the image of a a shepherd king tending his flock has been woven in to the messianic expectation of God's people. It goes all the way back to David, who was the prototype. He was that man after God's heart who was taken from the sheepfold and put into the throne room. And it was through David's writings, through his psalms, largely, that Israel began to see God himself as the shepherd of his people. And that's the idea that the priests and the scribes quote when they pick up on Micah chapter 5. In Micah 5, the Lord proclaims that from Bethlehem would come, here's, here's a little bit more of the prophecy, from Bethlehem would come one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth, And he shall be their peace. You can probably hear echoes of the gospel in that. But the point is that when the Messiah comes into the world, he won't only be a king over his people, but he'll be a shepherd just like God is a shepherd for his people. He'll be the one who who leads and directs and guides his people to himself. He'll be the one who, who protects and cares and carries his little lambs in his bosom. He'll be the one who sees that they're nourished with the richness of his mercy. He'll seek out the lost and bring them back to himself. So when the Magi show up looking to worship the king of the Jews, we see Jesus beginning his shepherding work already. You know, it's common enough at Christmas time to hold up these wise men as a, as a model of seeking after God. Their journey is, is a metaphor almost too good for preachers to pass over. So we tell you that you should be like the Magi. You should seek after the Lord. You should follow the Lord. You should look to the light of his word as he guides you all through your life. You should come to him. And once you see Jesus, you should fall on your knees and worship him. And then you should open the treasures of your life and give yourself to him. And we tell you, you should be like the Magi. Actually, that's a pretty good application of this text. You should be like the Magi. They sought for Jesus and they saw him and they worshiped him and they gave themselves to him. You should be like the Magi. But the question we never get around to asking is, why were the Magi like the Magi? Why were these wise men from the East looking for a Jewish king at all? With all the the traditional baggage that we have piled on top of these wise men, the reality is that we know almost nothing about them. We don't know where they came from. Babylon, Persia, somewhere. It was out there. It was that direction. We don't know. We don't know how many there were. We can almost say for certain that their names were not Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar as we have been told through the ages. We know almost nothing about these magi except for the fact that they were pagans. I was putting it mildly. They were court-appointed astrologers. They were wise men who served foreign kings, much like uh, Daniel would have been made to serve a foreign king back in Babylon. They were soothsayers. They were diviners. They, They were men who were expected to interpret dreams and foretell the future because of what they saw in the signs of the Zodiac. Their title, Magi, is the word from which we get our word, magic, yet somehow, somewhere, they'd heard about a Jewish king. Maybe they came from Babylon. There was still a pretty big Jewish population there in Babylon, and they still had teachers there, and maybe they had gathered their religious texts, and and they had engaged in a bit of syncretism, and they'll, they'll, they'll go after Zoroaster, and they'll go after the Jewish god, and they'll go after a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and maybe somewhere along the way they had read this prophecy of Balaam that a star shall come out of Jacob. The scepter shall rise out of Israel. And we don't know how they heard. But we know that God called them. Maybe not the way that we're used to God calling people today. You know, the Lord isn't bound by our expectations. He condescended to them graciously, he met them where they were, he spoke in a language that they understood, and he used it to turn these men to himself. And he led them to right where they needed to be. He used some inexplicable heavenly phenomenon. And they called it a star, but it's a very strange star, because once they got to Jerusalem, it began to move came to rest over the place where Jesus was. So most commentators suggest that it was probably something like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. That pillar of cloud and fire that shepherded Israel through the wastelands and into God's land of promise. But now God is shepherding these pagans to himself. That's what he does. He calls. and He shepherds. And he leads. You know, in John chapter 4, Jesus makes this unexce- unexpected stop in a Samaritan town. And Once he gets there, he sends his disciples away so that he can be alone with a woman who needs to be called. And Jesus initiates a conversation with this woman. In fact, that's the part that confounds her at the start. And she says, how is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink of water from me, a Samaritan, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, yet Jesus is there by himself, calling, leading, initiating. He's starting a conversation probably at the time of the day where she's come out to be most inconspicuous, most unnoticed among her townsfolk. And Jesus pushes and he presses, and when the conversation gets a little too personal, she tries to pivot and she turns to a theological hot topic. She asked him a question about legitimate worship. You know, uh, our forefathers said that we should worship here on Mount Gerizim. Uh, Your men, your forefathers tell us we should worship on Mount Zion. And which one is it? Stump the chump. Let's have a little exchange here. And Jesus is not drawn in. Instead, he continues to shepherd her to himself. He says, the hour is coming. It is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Why is Jesus there and speaking to this woman? Because the Father is seeking. And she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. You see, the Father is seeking. The Father is leading, the Father is using Jesus to call us to himself. Why did the Magi cross the wilderness to find Jesus? Why did they open their treasures for a Jewish child they had just met? Because the Lord was seeking them. Because he led them to his son where they could find pasture. Because he guided them by a star and then he guided them by the lamp of his word to find the one their souls desired. Page 488 in your Trinity hymnals. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It happened for the wise men and it happened for you if you trust him. And so preachers love to point out verse 12 as well, that that after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we don't have to make an allegory out of it. It's enough to acknowledge a new allegiance. They've seen their king, and they worship their king, and now they follow his shepherding. And it makes all the difference how we return to life after Christmas. This is the difference between whether we return content to follow our shepherd who calls us, or whether we go back to life with itching ears and wandering feet. It's the difference between whether we listen to his voice in the small mundane days and hours, or whether we return with our souls half listening, half hoping that there's something a little bit better that we still haven't seen yet, but maybe someday we'll catch it. Well, Christ came into the humanity that we inhabit. And he came as the king who demands our allegiance, and he came as the shepherd who gathers God's scattered sheep. And finally, he came as proof that God's promises can be trusted. This is the other theme that holds this chapter together. So as you glance through Matthew chapter 2, it shows up in this refrain that meets us nearly at every turn, at least in every paragraph, that all of this happened so that the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the mouth of his prophets, might be fulfilled. Why is it that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Why was it that Joseph fled and took Jesus and his mother into Egypt? How can we make sense of this evil king killing these innocent children? Why did Jesus' earthly father settle the family back in Israel in this backwater hick town called Nazareth? Of all places, it happened in order that the word of God would be fulfilled. It happened so that all that the Lord said would happen did happen. It happened in order that God's plan of redemption would be brought to completion. The Lord had a purpose and an intention in all that he was doing, and there was nothing that would stand in his way. So back in chapter 1, God announces his saving intention to Joseph. Now, Joseph probably had a plan of his own for his life. A quiet little life and a quiet little family and he could, he could sweat away at his trade and Mary could raise their children and they could go to the synagogue and they could come home and they could disappear into history the way that so many faithful saints before them and after him had. Maybe, maybe he dreamed of the blessing of hard work and obscurity. It's actually not a bad deal when you start to think about it. But the Lord had something for him. He had an obstacle to Joseph's plan for a mundane, normal, quiet life. And so the Lord appeared in a dream, and he told Joseph where this baby had come from, and he told him who this baby would be. And not for the first time, the Lord declared his reason for sending his servant into creation. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is the reason. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's another prophetic word. It is a divine promise without a contingency plan. There is no backup. This is God's intention. He will save his people from their sins. So by the time you pick up the details in chapter 2, and Herod starts breathing his murderous threats, the whole scenario has to fit what the Lord has declared that he will save his people from their sins. The Magi are there just to confirm it and the priests are there just to exegete it, and Herod is there just to kick against the goads and to show the inability of human power to overthrow the purposes of God. I think it's even the reason that Matthew has included this sad detail about the death of these children in Bethlehem. He's put that in there to show us the depths of sin that some people will sink to just in order to try not to bow the knee to God's power and authority and his saving purposes. He's put that episode in here so we can see the worst that men sometimes do when they're pushing against God. But he's also put it in here to show us that even when men do the worst that they can do, they're still unable to stop the Lord from doing what he's promised. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And so, neither death nor life, nor height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have become more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you conquer by your own power? No. Do you conquer by your own piety? Do you ascend into God's salvation because you have made yourself worthy? No. It happens because God has declared it. Because his word can be trusted. Because Jesus will save his people from their sins. And this chapter is meant to teach us that even when Christmas is over, Even when we return to the humdrum routine of Monday through Friday, Christ our King is still on His throne. And Christ our Shepherd is still leading us to Himself. And Christ our Savior is still uh, the one who was born and who lived and suffered and died, the one who rose again on the third day as proof to God's people that His salvation can be trusted. That's what the Lord wants you to see from his word today. You notice that as we go through Matthew chapter 2, there is this refrain, and Matthew seems to have this fulfillment trajectory everywhere. This happened so God's word would be fulfilled. This happened so the prophet and what he spoke would come to pass. This happened so that all these things would work according to God's plan. And there are things in this passage that only Jesus could fulfill and they only apply to him. But what if we lived with the same fulfillment trajectory in our lives? Because there are other passages and other promises in God's word that still apply to us. And so what if we began to use this refrain in our own lives to remind us that God's word can be trusted because we have a Savior who came to teach us that. What about in those normal, everyday, good things that happen, those comfortable things that happened? The check comes in and the bills get paid and you come home with a trunk full of groceries. What if you said, this this occurred, this happened to fulfill the word of the Lord that said, he will supply every need of mine according to his riches in Christ Jesus. What about when the difficult things happen? When the test comes back positive? When our relationships break down, when when other things happen that we wish we could escape in this life and the heartache comes down and it bears upon us, what if we began to look at that and say, all this has happened to confirm the word of the Lord saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What if the worst things happen? Things like we read about in this chapter, things that tear families apart, things that destroy lives, And hope and threaten faith. What if we were to look at that with the words of Matthew on our tongues and in our prayers and to say, all this occurred so that the word of the Lord would be fulfilled. Everything he does, he does good for those who are called according to his purposes. This is what this chapter is here to teach us. Christ our King is on his throne and Christ our Shepherd is leading us to himself. And Christ, our Savior, proves that God's word can be trusted. I hope you know it, and I hope you rejoice in it in the Lord today. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, our God and King, we thank you for your shepherding work. We thank you for calling us to yourself. We pray that if there are any here or listening or not already numbered among your people, that you would call them as well. We pray that you would cause your word to go forth like a lamp shining in a dark place. Give faith and life to those who do not have it, who walk in darkness. And lead us, O Lord, continually to yourself. For the glory of your name, for the good of your servant Jesus, and for the glory of your kingdom we ask in his name. Amen.